Hey everyone, welcome to the Elm City Vineyard. As Patrick said, my name is Josh Williams, and I'm super excited that you're here with us. Uh, not just on, you know, uh, Super Bowl Sunday or the week after, um, but Valentine's Day. Uh, thank you so much for joining us in this time. Uh, this is an um, kind of incredible time where we've been together for six weeks, learning about nonviolence together, on a journey together, and this marks our last stop for the series. Uh, our family actually kind of made a milestone yesterday. We added a new addition to our family, uh, Fandoon, Peace, Calm, Williams, as my daughter Zoe calls him. Our new fish has entered the family. So uh, Fandoon was her name. I like snuck in Peace. I was like, can we just make some meaning out of this? Um, pray for Peace. If you know anything about the kind of pet we have, it's a first pet. I think it's always watching, so I can't say anything, but just pray for peace, please. That'd be a great thing for you to do. Um, but it is a day where we're kind of remembering, marking, celebrating. This is a milestone for our community as we enter into our last talk together. So we have a few surprises along the way. One of them is right now. We're going to have one of our uh, alumni uh, who you all, I think, recognize, uh, Alicia, share a poem with us as we begin. So I'll go to that right now. Catch the Fire by Sonia Sanchez. Sometimes I wonder what to say to you now in the soft afternoon air as you hold us all in a single death. I say, where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? You got to pass it on. You got to find it and pass it on from you to me, from me to her, from her to him, from the son to the father and from the brother to the sister, from the daughter to the mother and the mother to the child. Where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? Can't you smell it coming from our past, the fire of living? not dying, the fire of loving, not killing, the fire of blackness, not gangster shadows. Where is our beautiful fire that gave light to the world? The fire of pyramids, the fire that burned through the holes of slave ships and made us breathe, the fire that made guts into chitlins, the fire that took rhythms and made them into jazz, the fire of sit-ins and marches that made us jump boundaries and barriers, the fire that took street talk sounds and made righteous Imhotep raps. Where is your fire? The torch of life full of Nzinga and Nat Turner and Garvey and Du Bois and Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin and Malcolm and Mandela. Catch your fire, don't kill. Hold your fire, don't kill. Learn your fire, don't kill. Be the fire, don't kill. Catch the fire and burn with eyes that see our souls walking and singing and building and laughing and learning, loving, teaching, being. Here is my hand. Catch the fire and live, live. Live, 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 live. These words arrested me when I heard them sometime last year. A retelling of black history with a beating heart of nonviolence right at the center. Catch the fire, don't kill. Hold the, your fire, don't kill. Learn your fire, don't kill. Be the fire. 
don't kill. Catch the fire and live. As I heard this poem, I thought of the way our faith, our faith in Jesus has been passed down from family to family, from reluctant or bold preachers to reluctant and eager listeners, from deeds that had the shape of the cross to folks humble enough to receive service. We have a passed on faith. That's what has come to us. What has Jesus passed on to you through our six weeks together? Will you live it? Will you pass it on to someone else? My deepest prayer for this series is that we would have caught the fire of the Spirit illuminating the way of nonviolence, that somewhere along the series there would be a tiny little match that has been lit, but then when we all come together, it's an all-consuming fire. This is what's possible, even if it's not what we see when we look at our world. It's my conviction that we either kind of applaud or scoff at nonviolence and its work. Well, few people practice it. A lot of applause, a lot of scoffing, few practice. Our invitation to nonviolence in America, as I've said repeatedly, is an invitation to, usually it's an invitation to quietude or passivity, often given from someone who wants to control or settle, who wants us to return back to a negative peace that's truly no peace at all. It's also my conviction that People are tired of this negative peace. They're tired of things the way they are and that violence is thick in the air, violence that we haven't seen in quite some time. And that air is ready to explode all around us. Given that, what's our invitation? What will we do? Remember words from the first week, if your enemy tells you to be nonviolent, be suspicious. But Jesus is not our enemy. He is our friend. The one who says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Words for the Sermon on the Mount that we started this series with, that some of you have been studying in a Zoom group. In our last talk of this series, Nonviolence, How to Seek Peace and Pursue It at Home, at Work, and on the Streets, we're going to look how Jesus embodies this way of nonviolence how his offer of friendship actually carries the DNA of nonviolence. He doesn't merely talk about it, he lives it. We started this series with his words. At the end, we're going to look at his actions and what they mean for him, for us, for the world. He lives this. It cost him his life, all for the sake of love. Let's pray together. God, I pray right now that you would come and you would be with us that you would show us the way, that you would help us be tethered to you as we're on it. Speak to us today. Speak to me today. God, would you be with us in our hearing? Would we listen as ones who are willing and even eager to be taught? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the time Jesus was at the end of his ministry here on earth, he had amassed a following. People he delivered from demons, people he healed physically and emotionally, people who were set back into community from isolation that sometimes lasted months or even years, people who saw his words as seeds and wanted to grow with him. This group was not one and the same. It contained zealots, revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow Rome, and tax collectors, people that benefited. Actually, their livelihood was off of the work of empire. 
ordinary fishermen, Roman centurions, women who had been sidelined, and men who gave up their prominence and influence to follow this leader of a new way. All sorts of people walking together by this new way, an actual way that made just as much of an impact as the man who showed them the path, as every step retaught, as every, as every step remade, and every step renewed each person and increasingly the world around them. But Jesus not only made friends and followers, he also unearthed enemies, enemies who were unsettled by this new way that threatened religion enforced by control and politics enforced by power. By the end of Jesus' life, these dark powers were aimed directly at him. What would he do? Would he fight? Would he flee? What would Jesus do? It'd be easy to imagine through the lens of our ordinary thinking that maybe this army of love would fight for a righteous cause for him, for Jesus, to even shed blood just, just this once so their leader could live one more day, so their movement could go stronger and stronger. But that's not what happened. There were no violent free Jesus movements, no plots to overthrow the establishment, no riots that we know of. Jesus was arrested, stood trial, but then was mocked, beaten, forced to wear a crown, forced to carry his own instrument of torture, and he was crucified. A man of peace enduring a violence of death. And the army of people, the army of angels, never once were they called on to fight with violence. Jesus, this man of peace, even caring for an ear, that a disciple cut off, an ear that didn't hear, but God thought was worth saving anyway, would we have done the same? At Jesus' trial in the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals part of his foundation, his way of seeing. It says here, Jesus answered, my, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. If it were, people would have been fighting for him with violence. Jesus' kingdom, though, it's not from around here. This is why nonviolence is so hard on this side of heaven, and why, whether it's at work or at home or on the streets, we can resist this way even while nodding that we agree with it. It's simply not in our bones. It's simply not in our blood. But there's a far-off kingdom where it lives, where it thrives. But it can feel so far, far away. It can feel far away. It can feel far away when we feel the temptation to cut people off entirely because we cannot find a way of living at peace with them. It can feel far away when we imagine, when we feel the anger of, walking with people who we think are wrong in the very core of our beings, and we wonder, what do we do when we imagine our own utopias where some people simply don't exist? And then we realize that those utopias, utopias actually have been built. They're being executed even as we speak. And they're not just or fair in how they exact their violence to individuals, to communities. We either realize we're under their thumb or they're a part of their oppression, often both. And this goes deep to our very selves when we loathe ourselves 
wishing we could somehow be something other than the problem. Jesus' words of peace, they're good applause lines for a crowd, especially a shiny, multi-ethnic one in a comfortably blue American state like ours. But how could we actually leave the, live these words out in such a violent world with such violent hearts, whether or not we admit to that? If Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, then where is it from? Then how do we get there? How will it come close to us? That's what we're going to explore with the rest of our time. Where is this kingdom from? What, what is it like? And how do we get there? To the question of location, an ancient prophet named Isaiah gives us some hints. These hints are actually spread throughout the entire Hebrew Bible from many different authors. Somehow, this place will be a person, some people say, as they speak, wondering what's going to come prophesying what's going to come. This, this place is actually a person. This person looks like this. But this person will also bring about a reality, a way that brings us closer somehow to the kingdom. We discover in their words a promise that it won't be so far off for so long. It won't be so far off forever. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, this is chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and, their be and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall pull its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Something is being birthed out of Jesse, the house of David, this ancient, revered prophet, ancestor of the Jewish people. There will be a person with wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and knowledge. This person won't judge the poor based on what they have or what they don't have, but with righteousness. Decisions will be made not through shady back rooms, but with equity. The wicked will perish with righteous and faithful speech, not from the sword. This person brings about this new world where the predator and the prey, the hunted and the hunter, live together. Relationships and practices that are all defined by fight or flight get reset into togetherness, reset into wholeness, reset into peace. The shalom that reorders and reestablishes absolutely everything. Humans are present in this kind of animal planet-like vision, not in the place of dominance or mastery, but actually as babies. Small children, vulnerable to the elements to the habits and instincts of what should be predatory animals. 
but they are thriving in their vulnerability. One even feeding in the presence of what should be threats, very real threats to their good. Feeding in the presence of enemies. There is a new way. It is not of this world. It is an otherworldly kingdom. Isaiah goes on to proclaim, on that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is a glorious vision, but it's a costly one too when the kingdom is so far off and it feels so far off. So I want to ask you, six weeks in, our last talk here together, in what ways does Jesus' way of nonviolence still feel vulnerable to you? What if you considered that this vulnerability is not a reason to cast it aside, but reframe it as a place of wonder, of curiosity? Where are you still curious even six weeks later about this otherworldly way and its ramifications? And what do you need to explore that? It was so good to be in a workshop with so many of you talking about these very questions. To be in a room where an Asian American asked, so Josh, what about when there is that microaggression, that kind of racial violence that can seem small but hurts so big? When someone says, where are you really from? And people on the call, Asian Americans on the call, workshopped that for about 20, 30 minutes. It was a holy moment a sacred moment, and some said, you know what? My response depends on how I'm feeling that day. Or maybe it depends on who said it. Okay, if I, if I said it this way, I think I could lean in, or, oh, that was really helpful. We actually came al- alongside each other with curiosity, wondering, okay, God, what are you doing here? Someone else saying, okay, I see how this could work in the streets. Like, I, I know the story of MLK a little bit, but, like, what about in relationships, like, with friends, like, people that should love you? that have hurt me, even like spouses or romantic partners, like what then? We talk through how this could work when people are close, not just maybe far away. Even last week, processing this horrible 2021 in terms of violence and homicides that we've had together, we've asked, what could we do? How can we become curious about how to become peacemakers who move towards conflict? It can seem like they're coming so fast that if we actually took these homicides seriously, how could we even stand? How could we mourn well? It's one for every week. But we've decided to become curious about that together. We can still become curious about that together. Now, I know it's vulnerable. You know, if you're the lamb, still curious and unsure, perhaps it's not best to explore your vulnerabilities right in front of the wolf, unless you're at a place of maybe commitment or obedience or you're not alone. See how that works? But a reluctant lamb with the shepherd, now that's a different story altogether. That's a good match as you grow and listen and ask questions before being sent out. God's good enough to allow us that time. So what lingering questions do you have as you grow curious with the shepherd about this new way? It turns out a far-off kingdom is not somehow inaccessible given the work of Jesus. We can talk to God about our questions. We can wait to hear responses. Our prayer can be a two-way street where we bring our very lives and say, Jesus, would you come and be curious about this with me? Because I have a lot of questions right now. That's good. That's encouraged. What if even the way this path feels far off sometimes, that vision of the peaceful kingdom feels far off, could become an invitation for you to draw near to God? 
and for God to draw near to you. Questions are welcome here. So the kingdom is far off. And Jesus is coming near to us for us to interact with him. How? How does that work? In the letter to the Ephesians, the early church grapples with the newness of Jesus' message and the fact that the herald of this message, the person whose life is made a new way, is dead, killed by us. What does Jesus' death mean for those who killed Jesus, who did nothing to stop the violence? As we move into our, our second scripture for the day, I want us to think about the author of Ephesians who says this in chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to you who were near, peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Next week, as we begin Lent, we'll explore much more how the blood of Jesus brings those far away near to God and surprisingly brings us closer to one another as well. Blood that's shed in an act of nonviolent sacrifice. Remember here, Jesus is not just merely the uh, herald of peace. He is the peace. He says a message. Remember, we heard about that in the first two weeks, but he is the message as well. His life is the message. When Jesus died at the hands of his enemies, he extended a friendship to those who killed him. It's a friendship that transgresses morality. It breaks the strict rules of who's good and who's bad. That can seem like kind of uh, clunky theological or religious language sometimes. Let's think about it in terms of the playground. Let's go back to kind of playground ethics real quick. When you're young, you usually play with those who play with you, and you shun others who shun you. If someone steals your ball, you don't play with them when you get a new one. It's basic self-preservation. The problem comes when you get shunned yourself for something you did wrong. Then you realize you can no longer play with others, at least not at that playground. Sometimes entire playgrounds become no-go zones for you because of what happened, what you've done, or what others have done to you. What happens when that's everywhere, when no playground is untainted? Then Jesus shows up to the playground. Jesus shows up with his otherworldly ways. Jesus brings peace to the playground by just tossing balls at people. Just like, you get a ball, you get a ball. Like everyone just is having balls thrown at them. Now whether people think Jesus is pelting them for maybe their bad actions, or reaching out to them in play, well that's up to us. And whether we'll let Jesus be the connector, kind of our teammate, who allows far-off people to pass the ball around and around and around to one another with the possibility of an ever-widening circle, well, that's also up to us. That's simply what Jesus does on the playground. We'll either be part of it or not. Jesus' powerful, nonviolent action is to bring peace to those who war. And that's all of us. And as we realize that, the peaceable kingdom is just one ball pass away. Just one ball pass away. 
Brian Stevenson, a lawyer who leads anti-death penalty work, says it this way. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. The worst thing we've done is not erased through Jesus. It simply is not regarded by him as a meaningful block to relationship. He still throws the ball. He invites us to play. This is the gospel. Jesus' truth coming towards us. Any law with its commands and regulations is not a meaningful block to relationship. Not because we are devoid of violence, but because Jesus already took in our violence to the point of death on the cross. And he still decided to love us. Our violence is not an obstacle to God loving us. Our violence, however, is an obstacle to us loving anyone truly. The way that we're caught up in it, in cycles of it whether it's loving God or other people or ourselves. And that makes us people deeply in need of peace, deeply in need of a new way. But remember, there's that far-off kingdom that's growing nearer, that says sheep and wolf can be friends, that lions and calves can lay down together, that kids can play ball with former bullies, that playgrounds could be restored. In the words of Ephesians, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father, by one spirit. The fire of Jesus' love tested by our violence, our mocking, our beating, our crucifying, and yes, our cowardice. The fire of that love passes peace onto us. Now our peace tested by our tendency to violence. Anything, remember, this is how we defined it, anything that damages or degrades or destroys, that peace can be passed on to others as well. While we always want that peace to be passed through a laugh or a teaching or a gift, a friendship, a marriage, a raising up of a child, we know it's passed on sometimes even most powerfully by the laying down of our rights, the laying down of our reputation, the laying down of our time, our money, and yes, even our own lives. Right? We've heard these stories in the series of Viola, of Martin, of different saints who laid down their lives. This laying down is our choice. It's not pressure. This laying down is our free gift to God and to others. It's not manipulative persuasion. This laying down is our act in a willful self-determination, not because we were already on the ground, pressed up against the wall to begin with. This voluntary laying down is not a glorification of kind of us falling or even abuse, right? It's our choice to lay down our lives, just like it was Jesus's choice. We choose to lay down because mercy runs deep and low, and we've chosen to humble ourselves with fullness of self, not smallness of stature. And we can do this because we know that the kingdom does not belong to this world. There's a way it isn't really supposed to make sense. Through Jesus becoming our peace and the kingdom becoming our playground, we can play a different part than the victim. We choose to be with Christ in our lowering, in our sacrifice, even in our suffering and death. The author of Ephesians continues, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are built. You are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we're faced with a situation where we have to choose to either fight or flight, what if we dwell? What if we dwell and face the situation with God? We take a beat, a pause, 
and he asks the Holy Spirit to help because we're not alone anymore. We don't rush to the scripts of this world, which would just give us a line for either active or passive violence. We pause, even if, yes, it is awkward to wait on words and actions from the Spirit, but we pause, even praying, come Holy Spirit and show me out loud or under our breath. And when we fail to do that, we simply just ask for forgiveness, a new path. We come alongside others following the way, get some encouragement, listen to God for next steps, and we try again. What if that's our life? In the face of a violent world, we dwell with God who is making our home this far-off kingdom. We simply hang out in Jesus' playground. We remember that we were once far off, scared to even sit on the swings out of fear of enemy turf. But now we invite others, passing peace on one to another as an otherworldly kingdom draws near. Sounds, I hope, beautiful. Maybe it sounds possible. It's also incredibly hard. As I've been thinking about this series, I've been reflecting on parts of my life where I've experienced violence and wondering, man, was there an invitation for me? Like, what would it have been? I think about a time when I was 17, still in Iowa, desperate to get out. And in that time, I just noticed something. I noticed that... um, I was wondering, like, what did I miss? Like, what was, like, what went on in high school when I was kind of more isolated and alone because of the bullying I experienced and uh, just being kind of outside of the loop? And so I actually got an invitation. I think it was like a mercy invitation. Like, it was uh, kind of an end of the year, end of high school invitation. Hey, we're having a kegger. You should just come. It's like, wait, you guys do that? They're like, we do this all the time. It's like, oh, oops, I, I kind of missed a few of these, I guess. They're like, you definitely did. And so I decided to go. It was kind of crazy of me. Um, but I said, you know what, let me see what I was missing. And maybe 30 minutes in, an hour in, you know, I realized I didn't miss that much, but it wasn't as horrible as I thought. But then an hour in, something changed. There was a huge red truck that came towards us. Did I mention that we were inside, or not, not inside, but outside? It was a cornfield, and there was a bonfire. And this red truck came closer towards us. And there was a Confederate flag on it, not actually a decal or a logo, but no, like a flag, like a huge flag that was on the truck as it came closer to the circle. And there was some music playing in the background, but as soon as the car stopped by the bonfire, four people got out, three that I had known since I was probably 13 or 14. People had said horrible things, vicious things, and the same people actually owned guns for hunting, of course, but it made me scare what might happen. That was a fear I had as I was growing up in junior high and high school. And they were the ones in this car with this Confederate flag on this night with a bonfire. And I was wondering, why was I there? Why did I say yes to that? That felt really dumb at the time. Still dumb now. And there was some music playing, and it, it turned off. And then there's new music that started. It sounded kind of like this sort of Dixie music, some country music. And then I finally heard the words of the song. I'm going to say them. Um, The words of the song were, I'm a nigger-hating man. I'm a nigger-hating man. I'm a nigger-hating man. Over and over. And I was terrified with this fire and this night. I didn't drive there. And I wondered, what would I do? fight or flight, and I chose flight, and I chose it hard. I just went around to people asking, can you please take me home? Can you please take me home? No, 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 I want to stay. I don't think they heard what I heard, or if they did, they didn't really care. 
And finally, I found someone that said yes to taking me home. And I remember just seeing those guys, and I had to pass them. And I tried to do it slowly. I tried to do it kind of hidden from them, but they saw me. I said, hey, your black smile. Taking advantage of the fact that in a melanated skin at night, sometimes you can only see your teeth making fun of that fact, which is a trope that people have done throughout history. And then I ran, I bolted, I found the car that was gonna take me home. And that was my night, but it wasn't, right? I, I just kept staying up, wondering what I could have done, wondering what, was, what happened. The next day was my graduation, and I was giving a speech. And that speech, I don't think I ever even thought that I could address what happened the night before. There was no imagination for a kind of creative speech that thought of this other world. It was just this survival, right? I want to give the speech, get my degree, and get the heck out of there. I wasn't curious about what I could do. I didn't have a community that was thinking with me about a nonviolent response. It was just getting out. And my way was honestly getting out through this achievement. It was a valedictorian speech. I was on my way to Yale. I said, you know what? I'm going to drop this mic. I'm going to leave, which does feel good. And maybe even you listening, you're like, oh, go Josh. But think about that narrative. There's violence. There's pain. Just get out. Achieve as much as you can. Let that be your success. Let that be the statement you make. Is that a win? Or is that something you'll chase and chase and chase to feel safe, to feel secure? I didn't have a community to say, Josh, what have you said at that speech? Hey, I'm praying right now because I'm actually scared. I'm scared of what will happen in this city that was not good to me. And I'm praying to a God who believes in good for me. And I wonder if we maybe all feel something like this, afraid and scared. But there's a God who's with us, who wants to join us. And what if I actually named why I was scared? I'm scared because of what happened last night, if I wanted to say it, or I'm scared because there was racism in the school, and there's negative peace that makes this pomp and circumstance not that for me. What if I dared to speak the truth? But I wasn't yet at a place of 17, and I think God's okay with learning and growth, where I could hear the Lord say that. I didn't have a community like the one that we have where people could actually come alongside each other and say, what do you think the Lord is saying to you as you ready to take the stage, Josh? My head was down, and I just wanted to survive. I chose flight, a way out, laced with success. But God had something for me then. God still has something for me now, and he has something for us. No matter how hard it is to imagine this otherworldly kingdom coming into our stories, we have real lives, guys. I get it. And Jesus' real life ended in death. This call is hard. It's difficult, but we have Jesus. We have his voice, and we have one another. And I think that's a lot, maybe more than enough, if we breathe and ask the Holy Spirit to come into our stories and into our life. I'm going to close with a few invitations. And then we're going to have uh, a video. It's just a song to reflect on what might be coming up for you in this time. The invitations are this. When Jesus passes the ball to you in the playground, the ball of his word, of his love, of his activity, do you actually feel a punishment is coming? Or do you take it as an invitation? I remember even when I started the series, wait, nonviolence? What? <laughs> no way. 
even Lent sometimes. Like, we're going to do Lent in a pandemic. We've given up so much. Sometimes we feel like Jesus' ball that he's throwing towards us is a punishment instead of an invitation. If someone had told me, hey, Josh, I know you're giving this speech, but can we just sit down and talk about what God's doing? I, I just want to survive. Or can I see it as an invitation from God? When thinking about the fire of God's way, do you feel a desire to pass it on or not? Consider why or why not and invite God into it and choose to pass it on to someone this week. When you're thinking about God's work, God's message, whether it's about nonviolence or anything, do you actually feel a desire to pass that on or just to hold it, choose to pass it on? And because it is a series on nonviolence and loving your enemy, how is God inviting you to pass the ball to an enemy? Maybe it's even a place of hurt that you've had for a while in your life. What would that look like? Who is it? How would God invite you to do it? Can you become curious about that? Uh, this song is going to play uh, for us as we consider those reflections. It's really about where do we go from here? And this is the question to us in our city of New Haven, in our church at ECV, in your families, in your own life. Jesus has given us an invitation. What's next for us? Where do we go